Hi everyone. The episode that I had planned to release this week isn't quite finished yet, but I think it'll be worth the wait. This episode of Mount Molehill that you're about to hear was originally intended to be the last episode of the season. So there's a lot of stuff in it about it being the final episode, but I wanted to let you know that there will in fact be another episode coming out on October 30th. Enjoy. Hello everyone. I wanted to start off by saying thank you to anyone who has listened to the show during its first season. Sincerely, thank you all. It's your support that keeps me going. Producing a podcast like this as one person is a lot of work. There's recording, editing, running social media, researching. There's a lot that goes into each episode of Mount Molehill. But perhaps the most difficult part of the process is choosing the topics for an episode. It's not for lack of ideas, because I have a very long list of potential episode topics that I add to every time a weird question pops into my head. But it's more that not every idea I have will necessarily have enough meat on the bones to turn into a 20 to 40 minute podcast, and I won't really know if that's the case or not until I've already started investigating. So there were a lot of topics this year that, for one reason or another, just didn't make the cut. Sometimes it's because I just can't find enough information to craft a compelling episode about the topic. Other times it's because I feel the mystery is too nebulous or the topic is too esoteric. But most often it's because the mystery I want to delve into is easily solved with a simple Google search. And so in the final episode of the first season of Mountain Molehill, I wanted to give you guys some insight into how the sausage is made and cover a few of the topics that didn't quite make the cut. If you've listened to my old podcast or if you've listened to any of my guest appearances on other podcasts, you'll know that I'm a huge movie fan and that I especially like horror movies. One thing I have always found fascinating about horror is how different cultures adapt the genre. Italian cinema birthed its own subgenre of horror known as giallo. Giallo is Italian for yellow, and the genre is so named because the pulp novels in which the genre originated typically had yellow covers. These stories are thrillers with mystery and police procedural elements, and giallo films often incorporate aspects of slashers, psychological thrillers, and sexploitation. Gialli are somewhat idiosyncratic and share similar content, themes, music, and visuals. One of the idiosyncrasies associated with the giallo genre is that the fake blood used in them is brightly colored, almost neon, and is of a very thick consistency, making it completely opaque. I had always wondered why that is. Is it simply a stylistic choice, or is it rooted in something culturally deeper? Alfred Hitchcock famously used chocolate syrup for the fake blood in the infamous shower scene in 1960's Psycho. That was fine and dandy for a black and white film, but once most movies transitioned to color film, the need for a more realistic fake blood arose. The most common formulation was simple, corn syrup, food coloring, and cornstarch. But in the 1970s, chemical conglomerate 3M introduced a new product marketed to the film industry, Nextel Simulated Blood. 
The most significant advantage of the product was that it claimed to not leave any stains on clothing, skin, or props, which was a major benefit for film crews that needed to perform multiple takes involving the use of fake blood. This was in contrast to previous versions of fake blood that did leave stains, making it difficult to get the desired shots without needing to change clothes, redo makeup, or clean up the set between takes. It sounded almost too good to be true, and it sort of was, because for all its advantages, Nextel simulated blood didn't really look like blood. On a lot of film stocks, it looked more like orange house paint. So while Nextel simulated blood became very popular in the 1970s, the decade in which the giallo really took off in Italy, it was quickly ditched in the 1980s in favor of more realistic concoctions. Last Christmas, I watched a lot of Christmas movies, and one thing I noticed is that it seems like everyone's always preparing a Christmas goose. But I've never actually seen a Christmas goose in real life. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen anyone eating goose anywhere. So it got me thinking, where did this whole Christmas goose thing come from, and why doesn't anyone eat it today despite its ubiquity in Christmas-related media? I found out that goose was once a popular Christmas food in many parts of the world, particularly in Europe, where it was once the traditional centerpiece of the Christmas feast. It was popular because it was considered a luxury food that was delicious and flavorful, making it a special treat for the holiday season. However, over time, goose has become less popular as a Christmas food for several reasons. One of the main reasons is that geese are more expensive to raise than other poultry such as chickens or turkeys, and as a result, goose has become less commonly consumed in general. Another reason for the decline in popularity of goose is that it can be difficult to prepare and cook. Unlike many other types of poultry, geese have a high fat content, which can make them difficult to handle in the kitchen. They also require a longer cooking time than other meats, which makes them less practical for busy families who may not have the time or skill to prepare a goose for Christmas dinner. In addition, the rise in popularity of other Christmas foods such as turkey and ham has also contributed to the decline in popularity of goose as a Christmas food. These meats are more widely available and easier to prepare than goose, and they have become a more popular choice for many families during the holiday season. Despite its decline in popularity, goose is still enjoyed as a Christmas food in some parts of the world, particularly in Germany and other European countries, but for the most part, goose has become more of a niche food item that is enjoyed by a select few. If you've ever watched an older cartoon, you probably know what a cartoon bomb looks like. It's round, black, and has a big fuse. But I wondered why that is. I don't think I've ever seen a real bomb that looks like that, so where does this convention come from? The use of cartoon bombs in popular culture dates back to the early days of animation in the 1920s and 1930s, when animators were still experimenting with new techniques and styles. One of the earliest examples of a cartoon bomb can be found in the 1928 Walt Disney cartoon Steamboat Willie which featured Mickey Mouse trying to stop a bomb from exploding on his steamboat. The design of the bomb was likely influenced by real-life bombs that were used during World War I and II, which did often have a spherical shape and a short fuse. 
However, cartoonists and animators took creative liberties with the design, making it more exaggerated and stylized in order to make it easier to draw and more visually appealing on screen. And over time, the design of the cartoon bomb has evolved. Some versions feature exaggerated sparks or smoke coming out of the lit end, while others feature cartoon characters holding comically oversized or unrealistically shaped bombs. But despite its simplified and stylized design, the cartoon bomb has become a powerful symbol in popular culture, representing danger, violence, and destruction. It's been used in countless cartoons, comics, and movies over the years, and it continues to be a widely recognized and enduring image in pop culture today. Have you ever looked down at your mailbox key, seen the words, do not copy, and wondered why that is? Well, I certainly have, and for some reason I thought that might be a good topic for an episode, but the answer was easily found and honestly kind of mundane. Mail keys often say do not copy to ensure that the key does not fall into the wrong hands. These keys are usually only given to the person who rents or owns the mailbox, and they are responsible for ensuring that the mail remains secure. The do not copy warning on mail keys is intended to prevent unauthorized duplication of the key. If someone were to make a copy of the key without permission, they could potentially gain access to the mailbox and steal important mail or sensitive information. By adding the warning, it is hoped that the owner of the mailbox will take care to keep the key safe, and it also ostensibly serves as a deterrent to anyone who might consider making an unauthorized copy of the key. Now, it is generally not illegal to copy mail keys, but it is usually against the policy of the United States Postal Service to do so. The USPS and many mailbox providers typically issue a limited number of keys to each mailbox and may require that additional keys be requested through proper channels. Copying mailbox keys without permission could be considered a form of unauthorized duplication of keys, which may lead to legal consequences, especially if the keys are used for criminal activity or to gain access to private mailboxes. The proper channels for obtaining a copy of a mail key will depend on the specific situation and context. In general, if you are a tenant or resident of a property and need a copy of a mail key, you should contact the property management or landlord and request one through them. In some cases, such as for businesses or organizations that require mail delivery services, they may need to request a copy of a mail key through the USPS. This can typically be done by submitting a written request and providing proof of identity and authorization. Riveting stuff. In Season 6, Episode 1 of Everybody Loves Raymond, Ray's parents, Marie and Frank, recapitulate one of their ongoing fights. Hey, Father, let me ask you something. Would you know who invented the lawn? Oh. <laughs> Would you stop? No one invented it, it's grass. Oh, yeah? So cavemen had lawns? Yes, they were called fields, you baboon. It's funny, but it also got me thinking. Who did invent the lawn? Well, unsurprisingly, we can't pin down the invention of the lawn to just one person, but we do know enough about the history of lawns that it didn't seem like it would be a very compelling topic for an episode of the show. The modern lawn as we know it today originated in Europe in the 18th century. At that time, wealthy landowners in France and England began to create highly manicured lawns as a symbol of their status and wealth. 
These lawns were inspired by the gardens of Italian Renaissance villas and the pastoral landscapes depicted in landscape paintings. One of the most influential figures in the development of the modern lawn was André Lenotte, the French landscape architect who designed the gardens of the Palace of Versailles in the late 17th century. Lenotte created a small area of grass known as the tapis vert or green carpet in the gardens which became a model for the manicured lawns that would become popular in the 18th century. During the 18th century, Lawns became a prominent feature of aristocratic gardens and estates throughout Europe. They were typically created by clearing an area of land and then carefully sowing and tending to grass seed. Initially, lawns were maintained by labor-intensive methods such as scything and shearing, but with the invention of the lawnmower in 1830, it became easier and more efficient to maintain a lawn. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, the popularity of the modern lawn spread to North America, where it became a symbol of the suburban lifestyle. The growth of the suburban middle class in the mid-20th century led to a surge in demand for residential lawns, and today the modern lawn is a ubiquitous feature of suburban landscapes in many parts of the world. The final topic that didn't make the cut for a full episode is a personal one, and it's one that I'm asking you guys for some help on. It involves a weird baseball cap that I have that I'll post pictures of on Instagram. It's a brown hat with a patch on the front with the letters WCCFSCGAS, and beneath those letters are a crossed rifle and shotgun above a black object that I can't quite figure out. I think it kind of looks like a World War II German stick hand grenade, but I really don't know. The tag on the inside of the hat says, Capital Caps, One Size Fits All, Made in the Philippines. I haven't been able to find any information on this hat. I've found other hats made by Capital Caps, and the hats were all made for a variety of things, from companies to local sports to tourist trap souvenirs. I believe I purchased the hat at an estate sale in Denton, Texas around 2014 to 2016. That's all the information that I have at this point, so I'm turning this mystery over to you, dear listeners. Thank you for listening to the pilot season of Mount Molehill. I sincerely appreciate anyone who has taken the time to listen to the show. It's a labor of love. A lot of work went into producing these episodes, and this season has sort of been an experiment to test the waters and see if the show had any legs. So if you'd like to hear more episodes in the future, just reach out and let me know. Get your friends to listen and follow the show on the socials. That's it, the end of season one. Mount Molehill is written, produced, and edited by me, Chris with music by myself and Alex Painter. This podcast features materials protected by the Fair Use Guidelines of Section 107 of the Copyright Act, all rights reserved to the copyright owners. If you have a molehill that you'd like me to turn into a mountain, whether it's a mystery that you just can't solve or just an interesting topic you'd like me to delve into, please reach out. You can email me at mountmolehillpodcast at gmail.com or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 505-218-6894. Follow us on Instagram to see updates and supplemental material for the show. 
Once again, thank you to anyone who has listened to the show or helped me out along the way. And be sure to stay subscribed to the show on whatever podcatcher you're using to get updates because although this is the last episode, I may just have something else coming down the pipe in the near future.